five years ago when we started our team right at the beginning, and we're here to update you on what we've done so far, which is a lot, um, and where we are, and where we're going. So briefly, we're going to talk about the basics of our team. We're going to talk about patient expectations from a visit when you send your patients there, a little bit about how to refer, a lot of case presentations. We're going to do four cases, and we're not going to be able to go into great depth about a lot of different disease processes. That's not our point today. Our point today is to show you how we approach these patients, how we work together, and how with this model, we think we arrive at more sophisticated um, management plans and, and that we take really good care of the patients. So that's what we're trying to show you. And the best way to tell you that is to really show you with patients. So we hope we're gonna have five minutes at the end for questions from all of us as a, as a team. So I'd like to introduce our great team, um, most of whom are here. Uh, Becky Strong, if you wanna wave is our fantastic nurse uh, <coughs> practitioner coordinator um, who's been with our team for the whole five years. Uh, Clarabelle Vega is our medical assistant special uh, scheduler who's a new addition to the team. Um, from a pediatric point of view, myself and Katie Cavanaugh um, are the ENT providers right now. Pediatric GI is Bella Zeisler, who's here at the front. Um, pediatric pulmonary, we're lucky to have three, Craig Lappin, um, Annie McLaughlin, and Tregonese Semino. And uh, I would like to note that um, the team started with some different members. We had Tulio Valdez, we had Y.L. Sayez, we had Umid Emery, and everybody who's been on the team has contributed greatly and made us stronger, and we thank all of them. From a pediatric surgery point of view, Dr. Chrissy Rader uh, has been with us also since the start. And then our expert speech and language swallow therapists are Marty Simon and Jenny Weil, and you'll hear from most of these people today. Um, so, who do we see? Patients with air digestive problems. That's the answer, that's simple, right? But what does that mean? Um, so what does that mean? That's a little bit more of a complex question. Um, there's a group of patients that we see commonly that have diseases, not just of ear, nose, and throat, GI, and lungs as separate entities, but that are interrelated and really dependent on each other, and those are, those are the bulk of our patients. So babies with laryngomalacia, reflux, and asthma, that's a pretty common combination that sort of feeds on each other. Uh, recalcitrant cough, recalcitrant asthma that's just not responding to medical management, there's probably something else going on. Recurrent pneumonias, again, probably something else going on. What a lot of these things have in common is maybe an aspiration swallowing component to these problems. Um, the team was started and modeled after teams in Cincinnati, which were really developed primarily by otolaryngologists, primarily to take good care of their complex airway reconstruction patients. Uh, cases that can be um, made or broken by other uh, disorders of the esophagus, uh, reflux, uh, lungs. So they noted that these patients were really or interdependent of all these systems. And so they really kind of developed a team for those patients. And we definitely have those patients too. They're just a little bit less common. Um, the team is not necessarily ideal for three related problems like ear infections and three unrelated problems like ear infections, constipation, asthma. We use a lot of resources for this team. It's a very long visit, and so that wouldn't be an ideal patient to send to the team. Um, all right, so how does our team work? There's two main components. One, the team clinic, where we see patients together. So GI, pulmonary, ENT, and speech and language pathology are gonna evaluate the patient, make a plan, and also try to do procedures and diagnostic tests on that same day, so one visit for the patient. And then the second component, which is really important and necessary for most of our patients, um, is to look and see. So we're, the thing we have in common is that we're all endoscopists, and if we don't know what's happening, we like to look in there and see. And in many cases, that requires anesthesia. But So that's what we'll do. We call it a triple scope. So we'll go together. Um, our GI colleagues will do an EDD with biopsies. Pulmonary is going to do a flexible bronchial lavage. We're going to do a rigid microlaryngoscopy and rigid bronchoscopy and maybe other interventions like tubes or tonsils or circumcision or hernia <laughs> or other things if they need to be done. We'll do it at the same time under the same anesthetic and we'll coordinate that as a service to the patient. So you're gonna hear a little bit more about what each service looks for when we get to the cases. Um, so we'll get to the cases. Um, as you listen to these, please note that they all kind of have a common beginning, you know, a four-year-old with a cough, but there's gonna be a lot of different endpoints and what we're trying to illustrate here is one, what we do as a team and what we look for in the, for these patients. But really, the awesome, and I use that word on purpose, interplay between the lungs, esophagus, stomach, larynx, trachea, bronchi, swallow, developmental status, parental uh, uh, engagement, 
and luck. Um, and I use the word awesome on purpose. One is kind of my word. Two is a children's hospital. We're allowed to use words like that. And three, I, I don't know if everybody knows the definition. I'm going to read it to you. It's uh, extremely impressive or daunting, inspiring great admiration, apprehension, or fear. And that's true about these patients. It's not. We, we, we're going to show you stories with happy endings, and we think they all have mostly happy endings. But sometimes there is a lot of apprehension to get there. Um, and again, we don't have time to go into each disease process in detail. So the first case is mine, and Marty's going to help to talk about swallowing. Um, so this is a six-year-old with a cough. She also had reflux. She had a pneumonia as a baby. She was croupy as a baby. Um, before she got to us and the team, she had a very thorough, very appropriate, very in-depth workup by good, smart people. Um, she was seeing GI here, the ENT guys at Yale, and a community pulmonologist. She had a daily cough, especially after thin liquids. Relatively healthy kid, but this is persistent and annoying and unrelenting. And she had a modified barrier swallow, which is a great idea to do to check for aspiration. Really some mild abnormalities there, nothing you could hang your hat on. She had uh, endoscopy by, our, by Dr. Zeisler. It was pretty normal, had PPIs, didn't really change a lot. Her pulmonologist had a great plan to give her some Uvar and some Nasonex, anti-inflammatory treatment. That didn't really change much. Our ENT colleagues found snoring and sleep apnea and big tonsils and did a TNA and did a bronchoscopy and looked at her larynx and didn't find anything that answered the question. And so after all of this, uh, the patient's still frustrated and uh, Dr. Zeisler sent her to the team. So in a team visit, she saw ENT, GI, pulmonary, and speech and language pathology. We did some diagnostic tests. We did pulmonary function testing, which is fairly unremarkable, fairly normal, maybe some reactive airway disease there. Flexible scope, which is normal, which I'll show you in a minute. And we did a swallowing assessment, uh, which Marty's gonna talk about a little more. We reviewed her old studies and did a functional endoscopic evaluation of swallowing, which is a scope in the nose and having to swallow and look at where it goes. And it really showed some mild discoordination. Um, here is, her flexible scope, legal flexible scope in the clinic. Uh, so normal stuff in the nose. She's moving, she's swallowing. This is her palate closing when she swallows. Um, everything goes fast, just to give you an idea of what you're seeing here. And we're going around the corner. There's the epiglottis, and there's the larynx, there's the vocal cords opening and closing. And that's a pretty normal exam. Um, just a bit on swallowing. So here is her larynx. She was a little disoriented, so I pointed it around. This is anterior. Thank you. This is posterior. This is left, and this is, this is right. So just a word on how we swallow. Fluid and liquid, and you're all doing this right now without thinking about it. You're drinking your coffee and eating your muffins, and you don't think about it. But swallowing's really hard. Um, so food comes from, I lost my corner. Food comes from anteriorly here has to go around here to the esophagus here on either side. Uh, sorry, this So it goes around here and back here without ever going into here. So like this around and back without ever going into the larynx where you aspirate. So I always say this is a terrible system. I wouldn't have designed it this way. But this is what we have and this is what we do. And it works most of the time except when it doesn't this is why all these systems are related, is you know, if you're aspirating, that's affecting the lungs. If you're refluxing or have esophageal problems, the esophagus is right there. So that may affect your lungs and your vocal cords and your coughing and everything. So, um, so it's hard to swallow. Um, and with this, I would like Marnie to step up and talk to you a little bit more about how we assess swallowing. Okay, this is your video. So within the team, we basically do two primary instrumental assessments. We do a video fluoroscopic swallow for a modified bearing swallow and for a piece. Um, both are diagnostic and intervention studies. So what that means is if we see something wrong, we try and fix it in the study and immediately assess how that intervention would be done and the effects. <coughs> when determining the severity of dysfunction, we're looking at both airway and safety. We're also looking at any impacts we're going to have on efficiency and what that's going to have to a patient's everyday life. Swallow assessments are just one moment in time. And so we use all the information we gain to make predictions on how that's going to impact the patient overall in their medical um, presentation. So 
the VSSS, the limitations are we're exposing to radiation and <coughs> that limits the data set that we're going to get. Standards are available to guide us, so that's going to help us, but we use barium, which is an unnatural bolus, and Okay, which is an unnatural bolus, no matter how they try, companies are trying to make it thinner and be more realistic of water or express breast milk, it just isn't. We need to take that into consideration when we're looking at the swallow. Um, the strengths are it allows us to see all faces of the swallow and how they interact. So we get to see how the oral interacts with the frontal interacts with the esophageal. And it allows us to see the actual moment of penetration and or aspiration and how a patient responds to that. For fees, yeah. For fees, um, the limitations are we're putting a scope in a patient's nose and in the pediatric population. It's not always tolerated beautifully. Um, the next thing that happens is that we don't get a clear view of the esophagus of the oral phase, so that interaction isn't clearly seen. And it is whited out at the actual moment of the swallow, so we don't see exactly what's happening at that time. So these studies are actually very complementary. And sometimes we're getting both. Um, key strengths are that it's tolerated. If it's tolerated, you can get a longer duration of the swallow set in the information, and it's a higher sensitivity for both assessing secretions and post-swallow residue. Um, for case studies, do you want to go back? Yeah, yeah. As Dr. Murray commented before, when we're looking at it, it's nothing that's extremely abnormal. Yep. So just a very quick picture. She has some penetration which hopefully you're gonna be able to catch, but it's really hard to see in real time sometimes. So what we did is we took a picture so we could show you what the penetration looks like. It comes in, it contacts the cord, it's fully ejected, nothing's left in when we're looking at the x-ray swallow study. So when we're looking at this, if we do a couple simple modifications during the swallow, and we saw that, hey, if we give her single sips, and we give her one sip at a time, she doesn't penetrate at all. Parents felt pretty happy about that, and they said, well, we can do that at home. We really don't need any intervention or therapy. And we said, yep, we agree, that sounds great. She also had some mild chewing issues, but nothing that was impacting her ability to take in the food the way she needed to. When we brought it back to the team, the main thing that we said was that we might want to go ahead and do a fees to get a better assessment of the thin liquid, because the barium is just not as thin as we'd like it to be. And so we wanted to take an extra peek if she would tolerate it. And I'm sorry, I, we don't have the video from that. We tried, but it's disappeared onto the hard drive of the system and it's in the ethos now, we can't find it. But I have an example of kind of bad ones. So, so this one is not her. This is just an example of what you might see if they're really not swallowing well. So we're gonna wait for the milk to come back, but what we're gonna see is even though you get a whiteout in this example, so as you can see, when they actually swallow, what happens is when they have the constriction it reflects on the scope, you don't get a true, not the swallow? Yes, you don't get a true representation of what's happening during the swallow, but right after you're gonna be able to see that you can see she has all of the residue. It's a really good representation of the residue that we don't always see with the barium. We also see, if you get them just a little bit, so Whenever I watch these, I try and tilt my head like it's going to make the scope go a different way. Uh -huh. yeah. um, but you get to look right at this while we're looking, is there any coating on the cords? We're looking, do they actually end up ejecting it? We can also sometimes see if they have reflux that comes right back up through that upper esophageal sphincter. <coughs> so in this case, her piece wasn't really any different from her modified, and it didn't give us that much inf more information. But when we're doing these during uh, the the teams, it does give us a lot of information as to whether or not aspiration may be a contributing factor for the team to make their decisions. Okay, thank you. So, so what we have at the end of our clinic visit is from a GI point of view, she's got dysphagia, constipation, reflux, she's failing medical management, things, you know, she's not fixed yet. From a pulmonary point of view, she's got a cough, probably multifactorial, microaspiration, mm -hmm. reflux, maybe some airway hyperreactivity. From our point of view, uh, this is a kid with dysphagia, a cough, history of proof, history of pneumonias, and this is sounding like there's something wrong here. So the conclusion of our team was that we're missing something, and what we offered to the family was, you know, your, your daughter, she's not having pneumonias anymore, you can wait and watch and do nothing and live with this, but if you want an answer, if you want us to try to figure out what's happening, we're gonna have to look under anesthesia again. And uh, she, this is a kid who had a couple of procedures. We weren't quite sure what she was gonna say, but her mother said, yes, please, and by the way, can you do it tomorrow? Because she was really kind of desperate for an answer. So we did it uh, fairly soon after, actually, we were, we were able to. So we took her to the OR for the triple scope. From a GI point of view, things were fairly unremarkable. From a pulmonary, pulmonary point of view, normal anatomy, maybe some mild inflammation. From an ENT point of view, almost normal anatomy. So what we look for, we look for subglottic stenosis. 
We look for TE fistulas. Uh, sometimes we biopsy cilia for the chronic coffers to look for ciliary dyskinesia. <coughs> We're really looking for abnormalities, no space-occupying lesions. But the other weird thing that we look for is something called a laryngeal cleft, which we could talk for hours about. But um, uh, it's better to show you what a laryngeal cleft is. Now, this is not my patient. This patient has a laryngeal papilloma. Just ignore that. But <laughs> otherwise, this is a normal larynx. And here's the interretinoid area. And I'm from New Orleans, I think of this like a levee. We know that levees are important to keep the dry side, i.e. the airway dry, and the wet side, i.e. the esophagus wet. And if the levee's too low, then the dry side's gonna get wet, and stuff is gonna go right over there and aspirate. So we palpate, to, we can only check this in the OR, we palpate to see um, if the levee is high enough. And the levee is supposed to be above the level of the cords. Now you can see that probe, it's right above the cords. Now it's not high above the cords. This is all really close. But it's hitting the false cord in the ventricle. It's not poking the cord itself. So this is a pretty normal interarytenoid area. This is not a laryngeal cleft. What our patient had was a laryngeal cleft. And again, I don't have the video from her. But you can see this probe is poking that vocal cord right there. Really subtle. It's a little bit controversial. Some people don't believe in it. We believe in it for sure. And many people do. Um, and when we find this, we can inject with the filler material to plump it up a couple of millimeters and get it higher than the cord. And then if that solves, if that fixes their problem, we know that we're onto something. Sometimes it doesn't work, but that's a good test to see if it fixes their problem. So we did that for her. And uh, she was like a new kid. Mom was pleased. It's sort of like a light switch had been flipped. She went four weeks without her cough. And that may not sound like much, but when you ask the mom how long she ever went before, she said never more than four days, ever, without a cough. So she was very pleased. The symptoms came back because this can be a temporary fix, but that's okay. Then we offered her a formal cleft repair, and she again said, yes, please. We remove the skin with a laser. Oh, there's many ways to do it, we like the laser. And then we suture it up so that it's a, it's a permanent repair. And then again, you can see when we probe it, we raise that up probably a good three millimeters there. So we did that, and uh, she's doing great, and still doing great. So her baseline is no cough, no postprandial problems, no dysphagia, no pneumonia. Now she's still got asthma, um, that's well controlled. She's still got reflux and heartburn, and that's well controlled. But what we have is a really happy family, a happy mom who's very vocally supportive of our team. Um, and, um, and I'll stop there for that case. Um, and our next case is gonna be uh, Dr. Semino, who's gonna uh, talk about another case for us.
So initially after pulmonary clinic, uh, he was sent for a chest x-ray, which was normal. He had a foot test, which was normal, because you can't see a pulmonologist without getting a foot test. Um, and a modified barium swallow was ordered because of the concern about swallowing um, dysfunction. And that did show some pharyngeal dysphagia um, with some consistent penetration of thin liquids. But when they thickened the seeds, just as Marnie showed you, they tried some interventions. So they thickened the seeds and they slowed down the flow. And um, those things improved the penetration. So it wasn't a terribly um, uh, impressive swallow study. And so we referred him to air digestive team for further evaluations. In the clinic visit uh, with Aero Digestive, essentially everyone said, you know what, this really seems consistent with some um, aspiration. Let's try all the thickened seeds that seem to improve things. And if he's not getting better, then we'll consider the triple scope. So two weeks later, Becky calls the family and says, how is everything going? How are the thickened seeds? And mom was really frustrated, said, I can't get these thick seeds out of the bottle and into the baby. This isn't working. He's still coughing. Nothing's changed. Can we just move on with the triple scope? Um, so I'll talk briefly for a moment about indications for flexible bronchoscopy. So there are many. Um, we will do flexible, flexible bronchoscopies outside of air digestive um, reasons, but um, the biggest reason we often will take these kids to the OR is chronic cough and not really knowing what's causing the cough and we really need to take a look. We're looking for things like bronchomalacia or floppiness um, of the airways. Um, we're looking at the lining of the airways, the mucosa, is it inflamed, and we're looking for secretions. And then we lavage and put some sterile fluid down his lung and suck that back out. And that tells us about any infections like bacteria, um, viral infections that are happening in the lungs. Um, and also gives us a marker called lipid-laden macrophages, which we probably won't talk much about, but is a controversial potential marker of aspiration. Um, other reasons we might take someone um, for a bronchoscopy is there's concern for airway obstruction. So striding and breathing, again, we want to look at those airways and see are they collapsing? Is there something blocking them, something compressing them? Um, or if they have persistent radiographic abnormalities. Um, and in some cases, we will do therapeutic bronchoscopy to try to remove things such as mucus um, or if there's rare alveolar disorders. So this is our patient's bronchoscopy um, from the triple scope. This is a little baby. We had to use the very little scope. We don't have great pictures. <laughs> I apologize. Um, but in the first picture, we're looking um, down the airway right at the carina, so right at the left. <coughs> and you can see that there's a little bit of flattening um, at, the, at the base of the trachea. And this airway is not a nice round circle. It's a little bit more narrow than the, air, than the right main stem bronchus on the right. And you can also see this glistening mucus staring back at you. And when you go into the left main stem, it's again, you can see that you're, you're, not, um, you're not a nice round open airway. It's a little bit compressed. So this is consistent with some mild distal tracheomalacia with left main stem bronchomalacia and moderate amount of secretions. So the results of the triple scope, um, ENT that saw the same abnormality of the trachea, no laryngeal cleft, no subglottic stenosis. The GI endoscopy was normal and our BAL came back with normal cellular composition, only one lipid-laden macrophage, but the culture was positive for Staph aureus. So that is consistent with protracted bacterial bronchitis and the mild bronchomalacia, but there was less concern based on the, um, on the results of the triple scope for frank aspiration. So lipid-laden macrophages, very briefly, this is one study that tried to say, you know, are lipid-laden macrophages associated with aspiration? And they looked at all different diseases that were undergoing flexible bronchoscopy and really saw that there was no difference and that really lipid-laden magnetization may be a marker of inflammation. Um, the difficult thing in a study like this is how do, you, how do you define each of these things? Anybody who's getting a bronchoscopy for asthma probably has maybe a little more going on. Um, and so it's a, it's a challenging thing to study if you're going to base it on is there a swallow study normal? We know that's only one point in time. So, so we tend to use these lipid-laden macrophages just for their extremes. We recognize that maybe they're a marker of inflammation. If you have very few, that's great. If you have a huge number, that maybe that's more consistent with aspiration. But it's just one piece of that puzzle that we take all that information from all um, four specialists together. So bronchomalacia with this patient, which this patient also had, can be a congenital problem due to decreased cartilage support of the smaller airways, or it can be a secondary problem from external compression. Um, there's weakened cartilage, and what happens when you go to cough or exhale, you're going to collapse that airway, and you're going to trap secretions beyond it and not be able to expectorate appropriately. 
longer colds or uh, viral respiratory illnesses um, in older children and often can present with exercise intolerance, um, respiratory distress, apneic episodes in babies, and recurrent pneumonia. Um, and protective bacterial bronchitis is again somewhat of a controversial diagnosis, but um, I believe in it because I've seen people get better when we treat it. So it's a chronic persistent bacterial infection of the conducting airway defined by the presence of cough for longer than four weeks that resolves with antimicrobial therapy and without any alternative diagnosis. So again, it's a diagnosis of exclusion, but you really do need the airway information, um, the lavage, to, to make the diagnosis. Um, it often presents with increased bronchial secretions, edema of the lower airways on the flexible bronchoscopy, and then positive cultures on the lavage. And the treatment is often a longer course of antibiotics, so some studies will say two to three weeks, other studies say four to six weeks, but often we'll start with two to three weeks and see how they are and extend it if they're improving but not completely better. Um, so this patient, back to our patient, we treated with amoxicillin for two weeks because of the um, staph aureus and the treatment plan was altered because of that bronchomalacia. There aren't a lot of treatments for it, but what we can do is change how we deliver nebulized medications to try to provide a little bit of airway pressure and open the airways and allow the medications to get in further. So we did that in this case and added PEP, positive expiratory pressure. It's a little piece of plastic that goes in line with their nebulizer and helps just provide a little bit of pressure to um, nebulize the albuterol in. One month later, he came back to clinic um, noisy breathing was completely resolved. His cough was significantly improved, um, and his swallowing also seemed improved according to mom. So this was just a nice case of um, pointing out some of the pulmonary etiologies that we can look for, but also really the importance of the triple scope, both for finding what is going on, but also ruling out things that aren't going on. So, you know, we were thinking this was aspiration, this was reflux, but those things really weren't what we found when we went in and took a look. Um, this was also a great case just in terms of highlighting that the air digestive team can really speed up the timeline of getting from initial symptoms to an answer. So this kid went from initial pulm evaluation to better in under two months time. And, so, and for a family, that's really um, something that they value um, and that can be important to them. So I will turn it over to Dr. Zeisler for another case. <coughs> Um, laboratory studies, um, most often for nutritional screening purposes, 
allergy testing, radiology, including upper GI modified barren swallows that we order a lot of, as well as catheter testing, which includes uh, pH impedance, as well as manometry testing, um, and of course, scopes. So <clears throat> moving on to my case, um, in uh, December of 2013, we had um, an eight-month-old uh, baby girl who presented to the GI clinic with progressive symptoms of dysphagia, strider, cough, vomiting, failure to thrive. She had an ulti-like episode. Um, and these uh, more significant symptoms were going on over a period of three to four weeks. Um, her past medical history was pretty insignificant. She was a full-term baby. She had um, a VSD, PFO, and a PDA, which had spontaneously closed, so was not felt to be an active problem. She did have a diagnosis of reflux that was given to her by her pediatrician, and she was given some treatments for, she had been on some reflux medications. Um, but because of the very concerning picture, especially with weight loss in an infant, we decided that we needed to hospitalize this patient for supportive care and for a further workup. So after some stabilization, um, one of her, the first studies that we did was a modified barium swallow um, that showed uh, repeated aspiration. And at the same time, we had an upper GI series that was very abnormal. Um, we we um, saw that her esophagus was markedly dilated. Um, there was absent, absent peristalsis, and there was um, a narrowing um, at the lower esophageal sphincter, or the, 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 um, the, the uh, so-called bird beak appearance. Um, and these findings we thought were possibly consistent with her diagnosis with a diagnosis of achalasia. Achalasia in an infant is an extremely rare condition, so we did some additional screening, including a CAT scan her chest and abdomen that also showed a dilated esophagus, but no other, no <coughs> other findings, including no extrinsic or extrinsic compression. So the next um, study that we did after that was um, an, upper, um, an upper endoscopy. Um, the mucosa of the esophagus actually appeared normal, visually normal. Um, however, the lower esophageal sphincter was, was extremely um, tight and narrowed, um, so much so that we were unable to pass our smallest infant catheter, which is basically the size of a spaghetti. Uh, we could not get past the stomach. Um, although the esophagus visually appeared normal, um, the biopsies did demonstrate some microscopic inflammation. <clears throat> so um, at that point in time, we were concerned about um, the possibility of achalasia. In order to confirm that diagnosis, esophageal manometry is needed. For those of you who are not familiar with manometry, manometry basically is using a catheter that has channels along the length that allows you to measure pressure within a lumen. So you can have esophageal manometry, you can do rectal manometry, you can do colonic manometry, there's anterodilateral manometry, there's different forms of manometry. This patient had esophageal manometry. So basically a catheter such as the one that you see um, in the picture was passed transnasally. The tip of the catheter sits beyond the lower esophageal sphincter and you can actually measure pressure waves over the course of several swallows. Um, for anybody who hasn't seen this before, um, this is an example of normal manometry. In the old days, we used to look at um, the line graph on the bottom. Um, more recently, we can actually look at um, uh, pressure plots or heat, heat maps. Um, so the, the, pressure, the uh, picture all the way on the right um, basically um, is an example of a normal swallow. The blue shows areas of low pressure, and the red and the yellow shows areas of high pressure. The x-axis is um, time, and the y-axis is where you are along the length of the esophagus. So the, um, the um, <coughs> top of the, of the picture, so that, um, that green horizontal, horizontal line um, shows the high pressure zone of the upper esophageal sphincter, and the green line, the green horizontal line on the bottom shows the high pressure zone of the lower esophageal sphincter, um, and the line that goes diagonal down the, down the middle of the slide is basically um, showing how a swallow propagates down the esophagus over the, over the course of time. So this, was, this is an example of a normal, a normal swallow on manometry. Um, on the other hand, with achalasia, you would have a very abnormal um, manometry study. Um, the classic findings of achalasia would be failure of relaxation of the lower esophageal sphincter and absent peristaltic waves, and that's what our patient's manometry study showed. So she was um, given the diagnosis of, of achalasia. Um, initially, she required some stabilization. She had a central line placed, and she had some TPN. Um, and once she was stable, she was um, transferred over to the care of our surgical colleagues, and she was managed with balloon dilation. She had some uh, serial balloon dilations over, the per over a period of the next few months, and she actually had a, initially a very, a very great response. She had normalization of her esophagus. She was able to take her bottles. She was gaining weight. 
um, she was doing, I would say, pretty well. Um, however, she did continue to have um, some cough and stridor, um, but every time she had dilation, those symptoms seemed to improve as well. One of the times um, Dr. Rader took her to have um, a dilation done, um, Dr. Kavanaugh came into the OR as well and did a scope and found some posterior wall tracheomalacia, which was felt to be secondary to esophageal dysmotility, so that would be another case in point of the anatomical codependence that Dr. Murray talked about. Um, so she did pretty well, however, by the time she was about 18 months old, the mom was getting a little bit frustrated again. While she was doing very well with her bottles and fins and purees, she really did not transition very well to solid table, um, table foods. Um, every time mom tried to give her more solid foods like milk or bread or things like that, she would have off and on um, problems with vomiting, choking, stridor, cough, dysphagia, so sort of the usual cast of characters for the ADT team. So at that point, she was referred to us um, and um, she had some repeat testing, including a modified bear and swallow and upper GI, which were normal. Um, because patients with um, achalasia are expected to have some degree of esophageal dysmotility, we tried to sort of take a medical conservative approach. We optimized her reflux therapy. We re-referred her to speech therapy for some more intensive therapies. Um, however, she really did not get much better with these complaints, so we did a triple scope. Um, from an ENT and pulmonary um, side, um, the, the scopes were pretty normal. She did have, relatively speaking, she did have some mild bronchomalacia, mild tracheomalacia, however, improved since the initial study that she had when she was an infant. The GI findings were probably a little bit more exciting. Um, the findings were consistent with um, a diagnosis of eosinophilic esophagitis. Visually, um, I saw that she had some white exudates and furrowing. The pathology was also very classic for eosinophilic esophagitis. The pathologist noted that she had severe esophagitis with about a million eosinophils for high carb field while she was on PPI therapy. So this is actually pretty conclusive for um, EOE. Patients with achalasia, with, you would expect would have some dysmotility and she would have been at risk for fungal esophagitis as well, but those studies were negative. So on the left side of the screen, you can see an example of a normal um, esophagoscopy. Um, the mucosa looks nice and pink. You could see the vascular markings nicely um, through the mucosa. Um, and that would be a normal, a normal study. On the right side of the screen is a classic um, picture of an EOE patient. Um, the, the, um, the mucosa appears thickened and edematous, and you know that because you don't see the, the vascular markings um, through the mucosa. Um, those lines <coughs> that go up and down the esophagus are, called, are what we call furrows. Um, the little white dots, or the microexidates, or I call them little white dots, is very classic for EOE. And if you look closely, you could actually see some circumferential lines as well. And that's what we call tracheolization of the esophagus. You could probably guess why. And um, these are all classic features of EOE, which this patient had. So she was given the diagnosis of EOE, and she received therapy for EOE. And that's a whole um, other talk. But she did receive some standard therapies for EOE. And, um, and shortly after starting these therapies, she actually did really, really well. Um, she thriving, great weight gain. Her subsequent endoscopies were completely clear. She was able to tolerate solid foods, a regular age-appropriate diet, and she only really had occasional symptoms that seemed to correlate with when she had an accidental um, milk ingestion. Um, throughout all this, her pulmonary symptoms completely <coughs> resolved. Um, she actually was scheduled to have follow-up manometry studies last month, but she missed them. Um, so she's scheduled to have them uh, done next next month, actually. Um, so as far as the uh, highlights of the case, you know, I picked this case because I think it nicely highlights an example of a patient presenting with the usual ADT complaints of dysphagia, reflux, noisy breathing, failure to thrive. Um, she turned out to have not one but two GI diagnoses. One is extremely common, which is EOE, and the other one was very uncommon, achalasia. Um, the big question for me in this case is whether these two diagnoses are related, and I think that the results of the follow-up manometry will help clarify that. Thank you. We'll turn it over to Dr. Kavanaugh. And while she walks up, I'll, there's an alphabet soup around aerodigestive. Some of us say aero, some of us say CCAT for Connecticut Children's Aerodigestive Team. We originally called it ADT, aerodigestive team. It's all the same thing. We saved the craziest case for last. <laughs> Teamwork and also the multiple diagnoses that we can arrive at before maybe arriving at the diagnosis uh, that may help the patient the most. So, this is a patient who presented to me. She's a six year old female um, who presented to ENT. She had a cheap plan of courses. Um, however, she also had a few other things. She had hypernasalities. 
uh, she had a chronic cough, she was choking, and her forces was very significant. Um, she had past medical history of asthma, she had pertussis as an infant and had several bouts of pneumonia, one including hospitalization. She had had an adverse complexity at an outside hospital um, at age three, so several years prior. Uh, she was seeing a pulmonologist and was on several medications, including Valera, albuterol, pulmonic singular. And we did a, a flexible fibroptic laryngoscopy and even a fees in the office, um, which showed presence of no aberrant, but really a normal moving palate, which was uh, important to note because of the hyperventilation. <coughs> normal. Her vocal cords looked mildly thickened, but no significant nodules, no lesions. Uh, and an extremely discoordinated swallow. So she was having aspiration and frank, frank aspiration and penetration really from all different areas uh, in the larynx. And all of this was uh, kind of mysterious because there was no real lesion that, that we could determine. So we sent her to Air Digestive Team. Here's another example of the alphabet soup. But sent her over to CCAT uh, where we found a number of different things. Can you note the dysphagia? Um, she actually was found to have clubbing, which was very concerning for bronchiectasis or a more long-term pulmonary issue. Um, she continued to have significant hoarseness, although that had improved somewhat, and uh, also asthma. At that time, crevices was added, and she got a sweat test, and she was sent for speech therapy, and if there was no improvement, we planned for a triple scope. Unfortunately, there was no improvement with medical management, and so we planned for a triple scope. And unfortunately, about one or two days prior, she had a new onset seizure disorder and was having to be delayed again. So we yet again planned for the triple scope, had to go down and try to see if we could come up with some answers. This was uh, some pictures of our first uh, triple endoscopy. This is a picture of a laryngoscopy on the left. You can see um, I'm palpating for a laryngeal cleft there, which she does have uh, what Nicole was describing. Uh, probably a type 1 laryngeal cleft where the probe is actually contacting the vocal cords where it should be above the level of vocal cords. You can also see a few bumps along the level of the vocal cords. Uh, and looking at the whole picture, which I didn't in include the picture of the supervillains, but there was quite a bit of um, white patches consistent with uncle uh, laryngitis. And this is a picture into the trachea on the right, and you can see a few patches of uh, the white, uh, white material and also some relative edema of the lining of the trachea. The esophagoscopy pictures are far more aggressive, which showed significant white plaques um, along the whole lining of the esophagus. And we arrived at the diagnosis of esophageal candidiasis, uh, laryngeal candidiasis, and uh, probably type 1 laryngeal plaque. Uh, we proceeded to go forward with medical management at that time. We didn't do any investigation into, or any uh, intervention for the laryngeal cleft at that time, given the friability of the mucosa. Um, we did medical management with gluconazole and speech therapy and additional PPIs. Um, with, uh, and then we decided to go back for another endoscopy to check whether we had made any progress, particularly with regards to the esophagus. Um, at the time of the uh, second endoscopy, uh, we found a surprise, which is right here. So this is the same picture of the trachea. But at the bottom, you can see a little pit there. So we had succeeded, I believe, in reducing some of the inflammation. Um, and this allowed us to uncover uh, an H-type tracheosophageal fistula. So at that time, we arrived at that diagnosis and called in the friend Dr. Reader. Once the patients get to me, they've already been figured out, and they arrive at my doorstep in a package with a bow. And um, so this is one of those patients who I was called um, into the operating room with the aerodigestive team to look at her um, truly um, uh, amazing H-type tracheal fistula. So just at tracheoesophageal fistula, sorry. Just as a reminder, there are several types of, oh, okay. oh, so there are several types of tracheoesophageal fistulas. Um, most of them are found in infancy or sometimes even prenatally um, suspected, but the H-type 
fistula over here is um, more commonly found in older children. Um, usually we, they're found, um, you know, maybe age three or four with the um, common complaints of cough and difficulty feeding. Um, they are quite difficult to find actually, so it's not surprising that it took maybe two attempts to find it. Sometimes they don't show up on a swallow study with contrast. And as we saw in our patient that, um, you know, if you have a fungal infection all over the place, they're gonna be very difficult to see. So, um, and I, I put up some anatomy slides, but um, I'm not gonna review anatomy here, but I just wanted to show you that the, the tracheoesophageal fistula is actually quite deep. And the H-type fistula, whereas the other ones are, we approach through the chest, um, the H-type fistula is uh, more commonly approached through the neck. It can be approached through the chest, and there are reports of people even thoracoscopically um, attempting to do this, but I think um, with good, um, a good idea of where the fistula is, you can make an extremely small incision in the neck, and it's uh, much easier uh, to do it that way. So these are the more superficial layers of the neck, and then we get down to this area where um, you can see trachea here, you have a lot of blood vessels and um, nerves in that area that we have to be very careful about with the esophagus um, sitting right behind it. So um, this was a really, really fun case for um, Katie and I when we we first um, tried to have the uh, fungal infection cleared up medically because obviously I don't want to operate on a patient like this and put stitches in an uh, esophagus or trachea that um, is riddled um, with um, candida. So once that was cleared up, we took her to the operating room and Dr. Cavanaugh uh, did a rigid bronchoscopy and here's a um, wonderful picture of her um, sliding a little Fogarty catheter so easily and swiftly into this fistula. And the reason that's important is because sometimes, as you saw on the neck anatomy, it's actually difficult to find that fistula. It's not staring at you right at the face when you make your incision. So it helps to have something you can palpate in there to kind of guide you as to where the fistula um, is. Also at that time, um, while she was using um, the light from her um, bronchoscope to do this, she was able to show me on the neck exactly at that level where the fistula was, where that Fogarty catheter um, slid in. And that way I was able to make my incision right over that. And once we did a little dissection, the fistula was actually staring me in, in the face. So um, that's great. I'm gonna show you this picture, um, let's see. Thanks to Dr. Bork, who was our, um, I'm gonna show you some of his drawings in a minute, so if you can't quite make this out, that's okay. So um, so here you have some strap muscles, you have trachea sitting here. This um, vessel loop right here is around um, the fistula, this one is around the esophagus. So if you can see, this goes like this, it's like a little U. Okay, and this is the connection right here that we need to take care of. And here's Dr. Bork's wonderful drawings. This is how we position the patient. We make a little incision in the neck. <clears throat> and um, uh, he's showing you the main uh, anatomy here. Um, again, this is showing you in a little close-up. Trachea, esophagus is right behind it with a little connection right there. We have the carotid artery, the jugular vein, the strap muscles, all the nerves that are usually sitting there that we have to retract to be able to do this uh, procedure. But um, with um, such great teamwork, it actually went very well. She was discharged post-operative day two. And since then, she has had no pneumonia. Her voice is improved. Um, she's eating, she's gaining weight, and she has no coughing when she's eating. So, um, you know, true, um, and again, success story for the air digestive team. These are cool cases, right? Um, and we enjoy working together. And uh, as usual, when we talk about cool cases, sometimes we talk longer than we meant to. So we're a little behind schedule, I'm sorry. 
Um, Becky, stand up and say, this is Becky, and she's our wonderful nurse coordinator. Um, I'm gonna go quickly through her slides. This is how you get in touch with, we have a phone number now, and someone to answer our phone, which is phenomenal. And it's easy, 58100, that's us. Um, you can contact any of us or Becky to send a patient. Um, we're gonna go through what the patient's um, experience, we're gonna go quickly through this. Uh, we don't have as many slots as we have patients right now, so sometimes they have to wait. We're really accommodating for them. If we can't get them into team in time, we'll see them individually so that they don't have to wait, but we're expanding our clinic. The family prep is important to know what to expect because it's a long day, Becky does all of this. We prepare ahead of time a detailed summary so the team knows what the main question is and why they're here. We can work more efficiently if we know that. Also, we do a huge medical uh, summary of their interventions and tests and provide that to everybody. That takes at least an hour per patient. The patients, it's a long visit. They may get all of these tests. We tell them to bring snacks because they're there for a while. Um, afterwards, we talk. the patient goes home and we talk about the patient. Sitting in the room together, you've heard the importance of that. Um, we send a summary to the PCP and the APR contacts the family. So now that you know what we do, why, I hope we've convinced you of this. The patients get streamlined appointments, less time off work, better communication between us and the primary team, fewer anesthetics, they don't have to leave Connecticut. We have some competitors in Boston and New York. Um, we think we compete very nicely with them. And really what I think we've shown is that we get really sophisticated decisions and plans um, by working together. If we're, we think this is cool and we, it's easier for us to talk to people in a room than to send 150 emails back and forth. So we communicate well, we can coordinate well, and we have the support of the team and our resources. So we think it's great for the institution. We serve the patient needs. We attract patients with complex needs, lose fewer patients to our neighboring states. Now, this is a lot of work and it's very labor intensive, but this labor is reimbursed. These are high revenue generating patients of high complexity. They're all level four, level fives. A lot of procedures, a lot of surgeries, a lot of downstream revenue for the institution as well. Um, we started with only one clinic per month, and for five years we never grew because we didn't really have the resources to grow. Now we do. We're opening a second clinic per month in Farmington, and then we talk about how great Becky is, and she is, but we've only had little pieces of her time for five years. We're going to get her full time, and with somebody who can work on the intake ahead of time, we can see more patients in a day, so we'll do that in about August. We're gonna involve anesthesia, nutrition, and social work to our team. Uh, I'll go really fast, I'm not gonna, that's the craziness of a triple scope and how many more we've done, but we don't have time for that. Um, we think our patients are really happy, why? We don't know, we're gonna ask them. But I think it's because they've been floundering for a while before they get to us, and because we accommodate these patients and we talk together and we answer their questions and we come up with a good plan. That's what we think. We will treat your patients well, 